Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. A couple of shows ago, we had the pleasure of having Christian Lass on for a discussion of what he's been up to as an independent watchmaker and his journey to get there. And at some point during our discussion with him, the the topic of free-sprung balances came up. Seen a a render, or an early render, of what he'd been working on, and and there was no pin regulator on it. Mm -hmm. But then some some later images of the actual movement showed a a pin regulator. So I was kind of curious as to what the story was there. And uh, he he shared with us that uh, he wasn't planning to do a free-sprung balance, but uh, it seems things have have changed a bit since, since we've chatted. I sent you an Instagram post that Christian put up a couple of days ago, and in it, he's uh, he's got a watch that's in the metal he's been making, and it doesn't have a pin regulator on it, does it? It's got a pre-sprung balance on it. Indeed it does, which I'm quite happy to see. Yeah. And uh, he's actually got quite a, a unique take on mm-hmm. a, a pre-sprung balance as well. Not so much the balance, but but rather the, the mechanism by which the, the stud is being held, which is, by any account, a, a unique interpretation, which... I'm really interested to see develop and, and take shape down the road. He's using a ruby ball bearing as a pivot point for the arm that's holding that um, that stud, and that's going to allow him to adjust it. I'm really curious to see how it actually functions in in real life and and sort of what uh, what purpose it plays and how easy it is to use to uh, to regulate the the timing of it. It might be a little bit challenging for people who are servicing that watch down the road who aren't familiar with it and trying to, you know, if they decide to take it apart and trying to regulate it again, they might have a bit of a challenge with it. But uh, it'll be interesting to see what he does with it. Uh, I like the way that he's chosen to build the bridge for the balance as well. Uh, that's sort of a different take on on uh, the aesthetics of cocks and bridges that are typically holding balance wheels. Um, so I liked seeing uh, what he was doing there. And uh, I'm really curious to see live video of this thing running and and sort of see how it uh, how it operates as as it's designed right now. Yeah, aesthetically speaking, I think it's a really nice touch. It's the the cock to hold the the stud of the hairspring mirrors very nicely the cock for the escape wheel. Yeah. So you get some really nice symmetry going on there and it takes up uh, a portion of the the main plate that was otherwise devoid of uh, anything at all really. Mm-hmm. Uh, so brings a really nice balanced look to the the movement. And uh, on top of that, I think it would actually make the, the life of a future watchmaker somewhat easier because the way that that balance bridge is positioned could be somewhat awkward to, to set in place and, and get just right. So I think uh, done right. And if you get this holding the balance absolutely concentrically there, exactly where it's supposed to be, being able to, to take it on and off without also having to simultaneously get the the pivot or the upper pivot rather of your your balance into the the hole the, for the shock protection on the balance bridge at the same time that'll make that uh, quite a bit easier because mm-hmm. I, I would imagine that there's going to be a bit of a lean to that that bridge the way that it is designed trying to get that fixed into the plate and, and not topple over on on top of the balance or, or mess up your spring on there for you so i i, I really like the the design aesthetically it's very nice. I will withhold uh, any further comments or thoughts because this is very much a, a work in progress. I don't sure. know what his, his end game is here, uh, but it is really neat and interesting to see someone going out and, and doing something that uh, I, I honestly haven't seen done in, in any other watch using a, a ruby ball bearing in this manner. Yeah, we'll we'll have to see what it does. I don't know if this is going to be a one-off piece because I know 
this was originally designed as a one-off piece for a, for a client. And then he was planning on doing a series of watches afterwards based on the work that he's doing for this one. So this may be a one-off that he's doing for that particular client. And then the, you know, the, the production ones are actually going to use a regular pin regulated uh, balance instead of free sprung. We'll have to see. And maybe once he's finished, we'll have to get Christian back on and we can uh, chat with him some more about what he's, uh, what he's doing with it. But it is nice seeing more of this watch as it's, uh, as it's developing and, and see where he goes with it. I think it'd be fantastic to have him back on the show. Another curious bit of ruby we touched on last episode was the the Rouleau Triangle in mm. the, the Ferdinand Bertoud FB2RE. I had a chance to ask some questions of, of Vincent Lepere, who is uh, sort of the, the second in command there at Ferdinand Bertoud. and got a little more insight uh, into uh, this movement and, the, and this mechanism. And uh, he had an interesting presentation recently as well with the Horological Society of New York, which we'll, we'll link to um, in the show notes as well. I believe it will only be available to members of the Horological Society for these next couple of months, but uh, down the road, it'll be available publicly as well. But it turns out the Rouleau Triangle in that watch is actually shaped by hand, which I it's was... unbelievable. I, yeah, absolutely. I was, I was blown away when, when I learned that. Yeah, that's interesting. It's relatively easy to create a jig where that center point is the correct distance from the center rotation of the the, the part in order to grind the curve of a rouleau triangle. And then you can use that same hole in the jig and just turn the part and get your, you know, index that around and end up getting your rouleau triangle based on that. So there are ways of, of creating a jig that wouldn't be too difficult to do that would then allow you to machine that uh, that rouleau triangle. So it's, I'm impressed that they were able to do that by hand and, and get the the results that they were able to get because uh, it wouldn't be that difficult to do by uh, by machine, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in terms of the hand finishing in this movement, it's uh, quite significant. It's about 200 yeah. hours total <laughs> of manpower just uh, refinishing all those, those tiny little components. That's amazing. The question that I was most curious to to shed some light on, as we, we touched on it there in the episode, was the kind of steel that they were using on the enamel dial to back right. it so they didn't have to use the, the counter enamel. And it turns out, as you had presumed, Chris, it is, is not stainless steel. Mm. Um, it is, in fact, uh, an alloy that they copied from a very old dial from a long case equation regulator clock that Ferdinand Bertoud had made about you know, 200 some odd years ago. And, uh, they <laughs> no said that, stainless steel back 200 years ago. <laughs> no, no, there was not indeed. Uh, it was a 20th century invention. Yeah. So uh, they had a third-party specialist in Switzerland actually analyze the composition of that material. Mm. And then they had another specialist make that material for them and they used that for the enamel dial. Turns out that wasn't even the, the most challenging part of, of making that particular enamel dial. Mm. It was actually, uh, he said, doming the outer chapter ring there and making it con vex in the way that they did uh, was the, the most challenging part to, to get right. It's interesting that they chose to copy a, an old steel uh, for the uh, for the dial. I think I personally would have gone with a modern steel just because it's easier to replicate and it's easier to understand the working properties of that steel. So you can actually, you know, understand the uh, uh, coefficient of expansion better and match it up better with your enamels. Um, with this, you would have to try and match your enamel to this steel, which might get a little bit more challenging. I mean, I understand from a, a PR point of view and from a, you know, that 
and from an artistic point of view, why they chose to copy an old dial. Obviously, they have that in their DNA. They have that, you know, that uh, that old clock there that they can actually use. Uh, but I think from a, you know, if you ignore that part of it, just from a technical point of view, that they certainly made their life a little bit more difficult by by using an old steel like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would have presumed a, a more scientific approach as yeah. well. Uh, but it was interesting to learn that that, that is yeah. the, the route they chose to take, and yeah. they clearly succeeded with it. Although it, it sounds like it did uh, <laughs> cause some, some problems. Some people might have pulled a few hairs yeah. out of their heads trying to, trying to get his work, or may have earned a few new gray hairs. Who knows? It's also interesting because I I wonder if they had more than one of one clock dial that they could go back and analyze how close those steels would be to each other. Mm-hmm. Because you know modern steels we have an incredible amount of control of the elements that are in that steel, but that's not something that two hundred years ago. Uh, a steel manufacturer would have had the ability to do. They would have had a lot more control than most people presume, but still nowhere near the the amount of control that would lead you to being able to say, oh, you know, I want 0.5% cobalt and I want, you know, 0.85% carbon in it and I want this in there and that in there. You know, that would have been, a lot of that would have been accidental. And I suspect that if if you analyzed three or four different dials that have been made over the span of, let's say, 20 years, there would be wildly different compositions of those steel. It'd be interesting to see just how close the steel composition would, would be from multiple uh, dials from that era. Mm-hmm. And with the right tools, it would actually be quite trivial to, to figure that out. Yeah, well, modern XRF technology is actually quite good. I mean, that's what, mm-hmm. when if you go back and listen to the episode when uh, Rich and I went to the goldsmith's company and we were looking at the assaying division of the goldsmith's company mm-hmm. they're using modern xrf technology and they're able to figure out very very you know accurately exactly what it is that's in those uh you know the metals that they're dealing with to the point where when uh, dave uh mary was uh looking at rich's wedding ring um he immediately looked at it and said oh this wasn't made in europe this was made in north america just because of the the different composition of it versus the uh you know the the platinums that they tend to use in uh, in Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've actually used XRF Tech to pull out an alloy that is a I had made into a ring for my wife a number of years ago. Very nice. Yeah, it's it's fun stuff. It's, yeah. It feels very Star Trekky to be able to use tools yeah. like that. Yeah, it would be nice to have access to materials. that. Hmm, maybe that's the next toy I should add to the shop. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, for you know just a fraction of the cost of the FP two RE, you could get several of them. <laughs> that's true. So another bit of dial follow-up I see you've stuck in the, the show notes here is uh, you wanted to elaborate a little more on, on Fume dials. You know, it's funny. I was having a tough time sleeping later that night after we'd recorded, and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, why didn't I talk about that with Fume dials? And I could have talked about this, and I'm going to get follow-up from this. And ironically, in between the time that we recorded that episode and published, uh, Roman over at Fithris Radio on his independent thinking show actually had Lewis Heath from Anne Ordain on the podcast, and they were in fact talking about Fume dials. So it was driving me crazy because I'm sitting there thinking about that, and you know, late at night, and thinking about all the follow up that I'm like, ah, got to talk about this, got to talk about this. And then, of course, Lewis goes off and talks about a bunch of it on on the, that episode. Mm-hmm. So when I went and, when I was talking about the way that I would go about making a Fume dial, uh, it's actually the way that Anne Ordain makes theirs. So they're using the changing optical properties of the enamel as it changes in thickness. So 
a thinner enamel is actually going to be lighter color and a thicker enamel is going to get darker in color. And that's how they've chosen to do it. And uh, from what I understand, based on the, the conversation that Lewis had in that episode, they're using a piece of silver that has actually been machined to have a slight dome on the surface of it. So the back of it is flat, and then there's a very, very slight dome on it. So it's changing that thickness as it goes from the edge to the center. So it's a little bit thicker. Um, sorry, the dial is actually a little bit thicker in the center than it is on the edge, which then means that when you have a layer of enamel in there and you grind it down flat, it means that the layer of enamel is a little bit thicker towards the edge and thinner at the center. And that that's probably the way that I would go about doing it, um, just because it gives you uh, a little bit more control over the, you know, that shift in color. You're able to change that dome to get you exactly what you want. And more importantly, you're using the exact same enamel across the entire dial. Uh, Moser's also another company that's doing Fume dials. And from what I understand, they're taking a slightly different approach to it. And instead of using different thicknesses of enamel, they're actually using a slightly darker enamel around the outside and then a lighter enamel on the inside. And so they're creating that gradient by actually using a couple of different um, different enamels and that gets you that look. And again, there are some advantages of doing it that way. In fact, you don't necessarily have to use the exact same color of enamel there. So for instance, you could use, let's say, um, you know, an orange enamel towards the outside of the dial, and then let's say a pink enamel over the top of it, and you could get this gradient that goes from one color to another as you're, as you're doing that. I've seen some people doing sort of art pieces, jewelry pieces, where they do transitions from one color to another, and you can get some really effective looks with that. You do have to be careful. Not all enamels are going to be uh, compatible in that way, so you can't necessarily do that. Uh, but you you do have the ability to sort of do that gradient shift if you have the correct combination of colors and enamels. I think in their case, Moser, they're using the same tone of color. So they're using, let's say, greens or they're all using blues or reds or whatever. They're not, you know, going and saying, oh, we want to have this go from green to blue or something like that. But the way they're going about doing it, where they're using the same thickness of enamel across the entire dial, and then they're going off and doing that color gradient by changing the enamel that's in there. You could certainly do it. You you don't necessarily have to stick with that same color. But, you know, again, there are some challenges with that. And anybody who's tried doing uh, a fade of color from, let's say, an outside edge to the inside knows just how difficult that can actually be doing that gradient like that. Um, you see this with people that are trying to replicate, let's say, sunburst guitars like a you know, Stratocaster sunburst, and they're trying to replicate that, that look of it going from, you know, black into, you know, sort of a, into a tobacco color into, you know, a lighter sort of golden color. And getting that look and making it look good is really, really challenging, especially as you're using different colors to try and do it. And the, the people that can do that well, it looks really, really impressive. Uh, same thing with painters, if they're using you know, very spray techniques and they're trying to get that color gradient or, you know, get some kind of a, a sunburst or a shift like that. It's it's tough to do well. 
Um, so the fact that Moser's doing it like that and they can get the, the look that they're getting and consistent is, uh, is quite impressive. So there are a couple of different ways that you can go about doing this. I, I didn't want to imply from what I was saying that that was the only way to do it or necessarily the best way to do it. I think it's what, the way that I would go about doing it personally. And it is interesting to hear that Anne Ordain is actually um, machining the top surface of the piece to be a different shape as opposed to doming the entire piece. I think I would probably have gone off and actually domed the whole piece. And that gets you a little bit of strength in the shape of the metal. And then you also don't have differences in the thickness of metal. Um, so you don't have potential problems with the um, coefficient of expansion changing across that piece of metal because the, the thickness has changed. Now, there, you know, it may be tiny enough in their case that it's not actually a problem. But uh, that you know that's a you know that could lead to potential problems depending on on what's going on and how much that metal is moving. Yeah, Anordain has been turning out some quality enamel work over the years. I've been really impressed with with their their mm-hmm. stuff. Are there any pieces of theirs in particular that uh, have struck you or, or jumped out at you? I think in the uh, in the pieces that I've seen recently from them, I mean they've they've been doing some impressive enamel work for quite a long time, and and frankly they the amount of money they're charging for their enamel work dials, uh, you know, they're, I think they're undercharging for that stuff. The, the, the quality of dial that they're producing and, uh, the, the sort of the low price that they're charging for it is, uh, is crazy. Uh, I think they could definitely get away with charging more money for those, uh, those watches than they are. I think they're, if you're, if you're looking for a, a watch that, and one of these strikes your fancy, I think that these are really an amazing buy from a, you know, from a price point of view. I think it's a, quite a good deal. Um, but I think of the, of the recent ones that I've seen uh, in terms of the dials themselves, I think that uh, the blue Fume dial that they've got on their Model 2 right now is quite impressive. Uh, I like the look of it. I like the, um, looks like they've textured the silver in the background, so you're getting a little bit of texture on it. And then uh, they've chosen a lighter blue that goes into sort of a cobalt blue towards the edge. And right at the edge it's, is where it's going there. Uh, so I do like that. I like the um, the look of that blue dial, the way they've done it. Uh, same thing, their turquoise one I think looks really good as well. But frankly, any of their, their dials are, are exceptionally well done, and uh, I, I'm impressed with what they're doing with them. Yeah, I, was, I was most impressed by their, their post office red, only because of <laughs> all the, the horror stories I have heard of, of trying to enamel with red enamels. And I, I don't know how much of that is just old folklore or how much of that is, is still present within the modern world of enameling. Uh, but I do know that that red has often been a, a troublesome color to get in glass. Well, I can tell you right now that it's it is actually quite troublesome, and uh, the and it is in fact it has gotten worse uh, over the last thirty years, not better. Uh, you would think that you know material sciences would help improve the enamel world, but uh, we we actually lost a manufacturer of enamel a number of years ago. Uh, they chose to shut down one of the Japanese enamel companies. They were producing the absolute best red for enameling on silver. And uh, it was the only red that I've seen people talk about that's been made in the last 50 years that was actually a good red that didn't have problems. And then they decided to close up shop and they refused to sell the uh, the recipe to anybody else, which was frustrating. So nobody else has been picking it up. And I know a few people who have some of that enamel sitting in their uh, their shops and they hoard it jealously. 
they refuse to share any of it. It's uh, it, it, because it's just it is that perfect red. Uh, so for anybody who's not, um, you know, is not an enamelist or hasn't tried this, if you try enameling the warm colors, so uh, typically things like oranges and reds and pinks, uh, those kinds of colors, if you put that onto, onto gold, they look amazing. If you put them onto copper, they look amazing. If you put them onto silver, they turn brown and they look horrible. There are a couple of ways that you can get around that, some of them more successful than others. So, for instance, you can put a clear flux enamel down, and that's one way that people get around it. So they basically create a barrier between the silver and the enamel, and that helps prevent the oxides in the enamel from reacting with the silver, and so you get a truer color. And I've done a little bit of that. I've, I've done a couple of pinks that have turned out okay doing that, and they're not bad. It, the challenge there is getting the layer of clear flux perfectly smooth and perfectly level and then getting the pink on top of it to be the same and you you know you can run into problems with that so that is one way of going about doing it in the case of anordain the way they've gone and chosen to do it they're using a uh, an opaque enamel and they're doing it on copper and so they're avoiding the problem of red on silver by using a, a an opaque on on copper and it's still challenging. Like you still have problems with reds even then, but uh, that that certainly saves you some, you know, some nightmares from that. And even if you go back and you start looking at some of the Fabergé work, they're they're sort of held up as the pinnacle of the enamel world over the last sort of hundred and fifty years. And even when you look at their warm colors, they were often done over top of gold, whereas other pieces, you know, things that were done in let's say blues or or greens or whatever. They were being done on silver, and the uh, but the the warm colors were often being done over gold. So there's um and it, you actually get some really interesting effects from that because you get something like a pink over eighteen karat gold, and you actually get some really interesting sort of tangerine orange color shifts to pink with the engine turning that's underneath it because the the refraction of the light through the enamel and then hitting the engine turning and then coming back out again and having traveled a different distance and having traveled at weird angles and things like that and then hitting that gold underneath you do actually end up with some really really cool color shifts coming out of it and i I remember when i first saw it i was uh, fortunate enough to see a fabergé exhibit in las vegas at uh, the bellagio we were there for a wedding and just randomly walked into the bellagio and it's like oh we've got this you know this fabergé exhibit on i'm like okay and it turned out it was the uh, Forbes collection uh, mm. back when Forbes was alive and he actually had the collection. And uh, there were, you know, there were like 100 cigarette cases there and in this display case. And it was it was nice as you walked by. You could see the color shift happening as you walked by. And the most remarkable ones were the pink ones because you got that that interesting shift from that sort of tangerine to, to pink. And uh, they were absolutely gorgeous. So you do get some interesting things that happen with it. The reds, not so much. I mean, you, you know, they were doing red over gold as well, but you didn't see the the color shift quite as dramatically because the red just overpowers the gold, but the pink was so delicate that you ended up getting uh, a beautiful color shift because of that. Mm. And you then that that gold color from the the um, the metal underneath really did come through. Yeah, it's surprising what a, a golden hue under, underneath can do. Mm. I've seen some interesting jewelry pieces 
which have pink stones in them. Yeah. And uh, you get the right gold alloy under that, uh, which produces some really nice effects. Yeah. Now, as I understand it, the, the cigarette cases from Fabergé are among the easier items to collect. Uh, what were some of the sort of pièces de résistance pieces in, in that gallery that, that you saw? Well, they did have, I mean, as I said, they had hundreds of cigarette cases in there, and that they were... Cigarette cases were something that uh, Fabergé produced by the thousands, quite literally by the thousands. Uh, they were producing and manufacturing something like five or six thousand of them a year, and they were uh, they were quite common because they were the gift that everybody you know gave to their you know their their spouse or whatever on a you know on an anniversary. Like they were something that people carried and used, and and they were quite common. So those are the things that are still easy to to collect because. There's still so many of them out there. Just gifting little death sticks. <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe not the, now that we've, we know what we know about smoking, they're not the best thing. But uh, yeah, I, I've thought about replicating the look and, and the feel of them and doing them as like business card mm. cases or something like that because of the similar, similar sort of aesthetics. Uh, but in the collection, they did have uh, some picture frames, which are remarkable and interestingly, not as large as, as often they seem from the photographs. Like they they do look bigger than they uh, than they actually are because a lot of the photographs of the time were not particularly large, uh, so the, but there were some beautiful picture frames there and they did have a number of the eggs there as well mm. and some very very impressive eggs as part of that collection. There was also a, a fair number of hard stone uh, carvings there. Uh, they did all these little figurines in hard stone. I, I've had zero interest in ever trying to replicate any of that. But the the skill involved in actually carving hard stone like that is absolutely remarkable, and I've I've always been incredibly impressed with the work that the that the Fabergé artists were doing in hard stone. But in terms of the stuff that I was most interested in, certainly the uh, you know some of the the cases that were there and the and the the eggs that were there were were extremely impressive. Hmm. And would would you still rate the the James Bond egg among? Your favorite of, of the Fabergé eggs? Well, it's not really a Fabergé I, I egg. I know that. I was, I was just, you know, laying the groundwork for you to... <laughs> yeah, I, I, do, I do actually like the, the Bond egg from Octopussy. It is, uh, it is quite nice. It's, I don't think it's the most impressive one. Uh, there are a couple of others that, um, that I actually like a little bit more. I don't remember the name of it. There's the white one with the red crosses on it that is absolutely remarkable. Um, the engine turning work on that is incredible and the enamel work on it is absolutely spectacular. Uh, that's, that's certainly one of my favorites. And, uh, one of the serpent eggs, which has uh, got a beautiful cobalt blue enamel on it is, uh, is absolutely remarkable and, uh, probably one of my favorites in terms of colors and, uh, and, uh, looks. I, I, I do like to look at that a lot. So who did make the, the quote unquote Fabergé egg for Octopussy? Yeah, funny enough, I that was as we talked about. If you go back, way back, all the way back to episode one, and my origin story. If you uh, if you've gone back and listened that far, yeah, the pieces that were in Octopussy were sort of the catalyst of me getting interested in that kind of jewelry. I mean, I I never really thought about making jewelry beforehand, and it wasn't until uh, Brenda started teaching me bench jewelry work that I started giving some serious thought as to what I wanted to try and make and and learn and. But it was really the work from uh, from that movie, those those fake Fabergé eggs that that uh, they had made for it, 
that were really what sort of drove me to try and learn engine turning techniques and and whatnot because that sort of got me down that path of of um, trying to figure out how the techniques worked and what was going on. And those were all made by a master jeweler in the UK by the name of James Miller. He he did some remarkable work during his career. Uh, there's a really good book of uh, his that sort of create you know is sort of a collection of some of the masterworks that he did during his career. Now he was the goldsmith that was involved in making them. He didn't do the engine turning or the enamel work, and I don't remember off the top of my head who it was that did those. Um, I, I do have a copy of that catalog of his of his work, and uh, funny enough, I've actually chatted with Jim a number of times over the years. He's he's long since retired, but um, you know chatted a little bit over over email about some of that work and and the pieces that he did. And uh, yeah, they made they made something like a half a dozen eggs for that movie, uh, including you know, including the uh, the hero egg that ends up getting passed around and whatnot, and with a delicate little carriage on it and things like that. So yeah, they they did actually make that. That was a a quote unquote real egg. I mean, that was a you know, it took him dozens of hours to make that egg, and uh, it would have been a significant outlay of cash to make that thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know whatever happened to it. I don't know. Uh, somebody obviously owns that egg, and but I've never found out who actually owns the originals and um, and where they are. But all of those pieces that are there, those are all real pieces that Jim worked on and, and made for the uh, for the movie. Well, maybe like the Razor Crest, the director just wanted a Fabergé <laughs> egg of his own to, to display in, in his home, <laughs> but, but couldn't afford an actual Fabergé egg. You know, that is very possible. Although at the time, you know, Fabergé eggs wouldn't have been too horribly expensive at the time to get a hold of. I mean, that was late 70s, early 80s when that was shot. So, uh, you know, they still hadn't gotten to the crazy heights that um, that they've gotten to since then. Although, to be perfectly fair, you wouldn't want to try and, you know, shoot a, a real Fabergé egg on a on a film set just in case something did happen to it. You wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to be responsible for that. Oh, no, absolutely not. No. <laughs> but some of the work that Jim has done since then and, and some of his other work is just incredible. Uh, something I've thought about trying to replicate and, and he's given me some tips on are these... Um, enameled flowers that he's done and those are remarkable because the vases are often made out of hard stone uh, so that might be um uh he's had the the these little vases turned and ground into um you know into the shapes that he wanted and then he sort of set a a life-sized flower into it and uh some of the work that he's done is just absolutely remarkable and uh and gorgeous gorgeous work so I, i've I've been interested in trying some of that at some point just because it's I think it's an interesting challenge and uh and certainly a nice piece because you can you don't need to put a thousand hours into the piece it you know it's not something like a like an egg where like an egg is a real commitment trying mm-hmm. to make something that size and trying to make it right and if you if you have problems for instance you know let's say you've spun the body of the egg uh you know that's challenging enough or you maybe you deep prod into the shape that you want and then you have to sit down and start engine turning it. Well, if you make a mistake on that engine turning, you know, you may be 30, 40, 50 hours into engine turning that egg and then you've got to do it again. So, you know, or you screw up the enamel work on it and now you've got to go back and replicate 50 hours of engine turning work on it. Uh, it's not an insignificant challenge to, to do an egg like that. But something like the flowers are, are a little bit more attainable and certainly could lead to some interesting looks and and. And you could do some fascinating things with it. Now, am I remiss in recalling there's quite a bit of piercing work involved in, in that particular <laughs> egg as well? Uh, you know, some of the some of the piercing work that Jim did is absolutely remarkable. I mean, my 
every time I look at some of these pieces, my wrists are just in pain looking at them. Um, the, the egg that's, he's done some eggs that had a lot of piercing work on them. So he did these, these, uh, lampshades, which I think ended up being purchased as a gift that was given to Her Majesty the Queen. They are unbelievable. I mean, they're probably a foot across, you know, this dome and this delicate pierce work all over it with plicajor enamel through it. So it's all transparent and see-through, uh, through it, sort of like a stained glass piece, but it's all hand cut and uh and hand pierced and it's just it's unbelievable the amount of, i mean i've done a lot of pierce work in my life and i don't think all of it adds up to you know over the last 20 years adds up to what would have been involved in making those lampshades they're just they're remarkable pieces hmm. now you actually have some of james's plans for for making those flowers if you were to execute them you think you'd you'd pursue them in silver or would you go the gold route yeah james has been incredibly incredibly generous with sharing his knowledge with the jewelry community he's he's happy to talk about this stuff and he's happy to happy to share his knowledge and what he what he's actually done he unfortunately he doesn't have any of the drawings or plans or anything like that from those eggs that he did for octopus yeah I, I did ask and he doesn't have any of those sadly um but if he does he, he's not allowed to tell you or he's not he, yeah. he'd have to kill you <laughs> that's true but he's been happy to share the sketches that he uses for laying out the petals and the leaves and and whatnot for his uh, his flowers. Uh, so I have I have some of those, and he's done a, a wide range of flowers over the years. Um, everything from you know as complicated as a as an orchid to you know simpler flowers. And so the I would probably experiment with some of those and maybe change up the shapes a little bit and change up the design a little bit from from what he did. Uh, the nice thing is that he's given me uh, sort of these flat drawings of what you would need to cut out of a piece of metal, and then from there you shape them. You know, you use a, traditionally you'd use a lead block to shape them, but you could, you know, you could use all sorts of different things, pitch or whatever, a pitch bowl to, to shape them into, into the, the desired, um, three-dimensional object that you want. I think for the pieces that I would do, I would probably try them in silver to begin with and just sort of see how they look and see what they look like. Now, of course, that leads to some problems with, I, as we just mentioned, with silver not being pleasant with warm colors. A lot of the colors that your flowers tend to come in are typically warm colors, which don't work well on silver. Uh, so I would probably play with some, and some of the pieces that he did were certainly not realistic in terms of the colors that they were of the, you know, of the versus the original flowers. So I'd probably experiment a little bit with that and see what worked, and and uh, depending on how I liked them and and how they worked out, I might try one or two in gold as well. Now some of the flowers he's executed, like the Calla type mm. forms reminded me of the Akanthura series that yeah. we referenced back when we were, we were talking with Christian that, that his wife Hannah has, has made. Uh, although she's carving those out, whereas uh, using yeah. the, these plans, you'd, you'd be chasing the metal or what sort of technique do you think you'd employ? Yeah, the the pieces that, that Jimmer's is working on, they are uh, they're starting from a flat sheet and then he's using chasing tools to shape them into the into the the, the final form that he wants uh, and there's a couple of different ways that you could do it if you were depending on how aggressive that shaping was you could do it on something like a, a hydraulic press and you could actually create forms which you could then press the pieces into uh, and that might actually be an interesting way to start with um, forming them so you could even do something like a 3d printed uh, punch and die to actually form the initial 
sort of shape of them just so that you've got that um you know you sort of created the the beginnings the foundation of that volumetric form and then from there you could then you know work on it a little bit more and actually fold stuff over because with something like deep drawing you can't fold something back on itself easily um you know in some of these pieces they actually wrap around and they you know let's say the the petals actually form a tube let's say as they get towards the center of a of a flower that hasn't quite opened yet so you can you can end up with some interesting interesting techniques to try and play with and and experiment with uh, the nice thing is you don't have to use really thick metal and so you know you're dealing with silver that's relatively thin or gold that's relatively thin you know you could very easily form these it's it wouldn't be a particularly challenging thing to do uh in terms of the actual movement of the the metal it's not like trying to do this in steel or something like that and uh from there it would just be a question of getting the volume right and making it look like you want it to look instead of you know just being a flat piece that looks kind of bumpy because you've been banging on it with a hammer now in terms of strength though what sort of material would you 3d print to to form silver and, and gold or is this incredibly thin? Because it doesn't seem thin enough to me to, to be able to just press with some of your run-of-the-mill materials you, you typically 3D print with. Mm. Yeah, something like the the Tough 2000 that uh, Formlabs has, um, that's actually something that I've seen people use as a uh, as a jig material for different uh, different types of jigs. And again, you know, you're talking about you're talking about silver that would probably be, say, 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7 millimeter thick. So certainly not you know, not thick enough that you would cause problems with it. And I, I certainly wouldn't try to press, let's say, a thousand pieces using the um, the 3D printed material. Um, but as long as you didn't go too crazy with it, uh, it wouldn't be too bad. And in fact, if you used one side as a, um, you know, as a formed punch or formed uh, die, and then you used um, a hydrometer rubber as the support on the other side, you could probably get away with using it in a, for a longer period, uh, especially if it was contained inside of a vessel. Um, there's some, um, uh, if you look at uh, Bonnie Dune and what um, Phil Poyer has been doing with some of the work, he he makes some great hydraulic presses for the jewelry industry. They made a whole series of accessories, which are excellent for exactly this kind of thing. And, you know, you can put all sorts of different supports in there. Uh, you can use all sorts of different things for being able to form metal using, again, rubber as a as a base to sort of support into or to, to form into. And so, you know, you could get away with certainly doing enough pieces using something like a 3D printed form that you could get away with doing, you know, a couple dozen of these flowers and probably not have too many issues with it. And frankly, if it, you know, if that form breaks, then you could print another one, right? That's the the beauty of the of that sort of thing uh, and it would certainly be easier than having to form it yourself or carve it yourself by hand and and uh, work on it that way yeah the, the tough 2000 you uh, printed out one of the, those face mask uh, adapters for yeah. me using the the skin from my face which is was quite a bit nicer than what i had turned out of my fdm printer and certainly mm-hmm. uh, going to be far more robust and reliable so i, I could see actually using that material for, for that sort of purpose. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, a lot of the other materials uh, I'm accustomed to seeing coming out of a 3D printer uh, certainly wouldn't be up to the task. No, most of the pr- most of the materials that you'd be using, especially out of a an extrusion-based printer, uh, a lot of those are going to be too brittle. They're they're just going to explode when you put any kind of force into them. 
Uh, these, this I think would certainly be strong enough that you could put, I wouldn't, I'm not sure that I would put all 20 tons of my, like I've got a hydraulic, 20 ton hydraulic press downstairs. I'm not sure that I would put all 20 tons into it. Uh, I think that might, you know, that might be a little bit much, but at the same time, you wouldn't necessarily need to do that. Like I tend to hit the higher ends of the, the press when you're doing things like coining or, you know, or where you're doing something like deep drawing or whatever. That's where you're starting to hit sort of the high, the high ends of the of the press. When you're doing uh, a shaped form like this into, uh, you know, into a rubber uh, base, you don't need to put 20 tons of force into it to bend the silver. It will certainly move long before that. So I think you could do some interesting things with that. And I think you could do, you could use it in a way that would allow you to replicate at least the base shape that you wanted and give you a starting point. Because one of the most challenging things with any of this stuff is starting with that flat sheet and saying, okay, how do, great, I've got this flat sheet. How do I form this into something that's got some volume to it and is actually going to look good? And uh, and that that's the challenge of that. Well, it was lovely of James Miller to, to share those drawings with you. Yeah. Uh, and it was lovely, too, to hear from Lewis Heath there on the Fifth Wrist Radio Independent Thinking podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be sure to link to, to that in the show notes. And I'll try and dig up uh, a tour or something as well of, of Donze Cadillac, which is a, another specialist down in Switzerland that does a lot of enamel work on, on watch dials to just give listeners some, some visual insight into the processes behind doing that sort of work because it is very involved and there are so many variables at play mm. in so many ways that, that things can go south. Yeah. Uh, so it, it really is wonderful that there are still brands out there like Anolde and Votilainen and then even, you know, Grand Seiko mm-hmm. and Seiko itself, who are still carrying on in this tradition of making enamel dials. Mm-hmm. And most of the, most brands out there now are not actually trying to do this in-house anymore because it is it is such a an important specialty. I know the, the Struthers, Craig and Rebecca, they are using enamel dials for some of their watches. Uh, now, they're, they're very fortunate. Their landlords happen to be Deacon and Francis, who have been doing enamel work for hundreds of years at this point. Uh, so they're, they're quite fortunate to have very ready access to, uh, you know, masters of that craft. Um, and that tends to be where, what people do if, if they need that kind of work done, they tend to go to an outside supplier because it is such a specialist field now. And there are very, very few people that are doing it and doing it well. Now, before we wrap up, I, I do have one last bit of correction, follow up, what have you from, from our last episode that that has to do with uh, the ringing of gauge blocks together <laughs> i kind of suggested that uh that it was just a matter of all those molecules sort of hanging out together and being attracted to one another and that, that you know that's what's holding the gauge blocks together but that, that's only a small part uh, of what's holding the the gauge blocks together so thanks to spencer wright I, i've learned that um, when you are ringing gauge blocks together, there are actually three different factors at play. And and one of them is indeed that sort of molecular attraction that is taking place. Uh, but you are also in that ringing process, ringing the air out mm-hmm. from between the blocks. You are in essence creating a vacuum but between those two blocks. So then the atmospheric pressure around those blocks is also forcing them together. And then on top of that, you are also using some sort of gauge block uh, fluid uh, and oil typically something like kerosene and so then you also have hydrostatic pressure at play hmm. where the the thin film between those blocks is is also creating a very tight bond and it turns out that 
put numbers on that bond. It's about 300 newton meters of force that, that you would need to pull two gauge blocks apart with your, your bare hands without re-ringing them off one another. And when you see the size of a gauge block, it is very difficult to get a good grasp on it and trying to apply <laughs> 300 newton meters of force on these these tiny little gauge blocks is not trivial. So it, they are very, very difficult to pull apart like that just because they're they're difficult to get a good grasp on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. They're, the There are a couple of different forces working there. The I, I had always been led to believe that the vacuum that's being created, the fact that you're you're actually wringing the air out between them, that that vacuum plus the atmospheric pressure is probably the most significant force that's in there. Um, a lot of people tend to try and keep their gauge blocks clean when they're and and free of fluid when they're actually using them because that layer of fluid can actually uh, affect the uh, the dimension of it depending on how accurate you're actually trying to get with your gauge blocks and how accurate your gauge blocks are. You know, if you get a nice set of Mitotoyo um, ceramic gauge blocks, uh, which are astronomically expensive. Uh, you know, you can get some incredible precision out of those blocks. And so, uh, you know, I know that, that things even like a, a film of, of liquid in there could uh, could cause problems for you. Um, so I, I was always led to believe that the, um, the vacuum is actually the, the most significant part of that. It's nice to hear that there are a couple of different forces at work there. Now, when, when last we talked, you had only just received your, your gauge blocks and along with your, your sign vice, which I, I did get to see in person after after that. And uh, since then, you've actually been busy using your gauge blocks and, and your sign vice. So how did things play out? Yeah, we've been, uh, as we mentioned, we're, we're working on this, uh, this movement. And it does have a, it does have a name, a code name, a project name. What's the project name? So there's all sorts of different routes we could have gone, you know, could have been, you know, like the names you, you give your computers, things like that. Uh-huh. Or, uh, you know, different sorts of local fauna uh, we're, we're going with with mythical creatures uh for, for our project so this is this is project minotaur right of course anytime you're you're working on any sizable project and any meaningful project or a series of projects or a series of projects of course the very first thing that happens is that you sit down and you realize i need like 30 different tools and jigs and things like that for this project and so the the first thing is making tools to make the tools, to mount parts on tools that you've made. Basically, it's, it's tools all the way down, John. There's, uh, my life has been nothing but making tools lately, uh, which actually come to think of it, this has been sort of the story of my life for the last couple of years is making a lot of tools. We spoke on the last episode about making the tool holders for the tripan tool post, and so I was doing a lot of that kind of work. And one of the very first things that I did after making those, I made a wobble stick that could mount on that tool post. And so the wobble sticks traditionally, as we mentioned before, uh, just sit in sort of a, a V-shaped post, um, but they're just sort of free-floating. So I wanted something that was a little bit more permanent and a little bit easier to, to manage and was something that I knew was always going to be on the center height of the of the lathe. So I created a wobble stick with a universal joint in it, and uh, it's uh, perhaps a little bit ridiculous. It's uh, It's got a... 45 to 1 <laughs> ratio between the short end and the long end of the of the wobble stick. Might be a bit excessive. It, well, you know, John, if it's if it's worth making, it's worth going to excess. And it's better to have too much than too little. That's right. I, we can always cut it down yeah. and and turn it into a slightly shorter one. 
Um, but this one is, is, is reasonable so far. I had a chance to just do a quick, uh, sort of sanity check with it on, um, on my Cromwell lathe when I finished making it yesterday. Um, and it moves perfectly. It does exactly what I want it to do. Uh, we'll see in practice when it comes to trying to, trying to dial in a fine hole on a, an existing watch movement, uh, just to see how, how, um, tight it is and, and how well it works. Um, so that'll be the sort of the real test is, is actually trying to put it to use centering some of those holes that we need to drill out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At its current length and, and ratio, I'd be reticent to put it in any jeweled hole at the moment. Yeah. It might, it might cause some damage to, to a jewel if, uh, if you're not careful, uh, it does have a little bit of weight to it. And, and, uh, obviously the long end of it, it has, uh, quite a bit of force acting on the shorter side. Uh, it does have a lot of leverage that's acting on there. So that might be a bit problematic. Um, but we'll see. And again, we'll, we'll try it out and see what works. It may be one of those situations where I end up making a couple of different wobble sticks of different lengths just to get you to that point where you're, you're close enough that it's, it's good. Uh, and of course the other option is to use a wobble stick acting on a dial indicator. Uh, I have some very accurate dial indicators, you know, ones that are good down to a micron. So, uh, you know, you could again, stick with a shorter wobble stick but have the long end of it acting on a, on something like a on something like a dial indicator so you can actually see the movement of it and and be able to indicate accurately off of it and that would frankly that would be just as good as one of the, some of you know some of these long wobble sticks that are out there that's a precise lever pressing on another precise lever exactly now tripan is is a bit of a a niche Swiss manufacturer of tools and uh, another niche manufacturer of tools I actually hadn't heard of before uh, was Regless. And uh, you used this little jig slash fixture when you were making the wobble stick. So, so what exactly is this, this Regless that you employed? The, honestly, the, the tripan pull post is, is probably incredibly common. It's well, like it's the Coca-Cola of of tools compared to the regless but it is uh, niche it, it it having said that it is still it's still niche it's still incredibly common compared to the regless i've i think i've only ever seen two regless jigs for sale and only a couple of them sort of talked about online they're, they're certainly out there but nobody seems to talk about them because they are incredibly niche tools uh so these jigs are specifically designed for drilling and not only for drilling, because of course there are lots of drilling machines out there. Uh, you know, Christian talked about the the drilling machines that he has and tapping machines and things like that. And you can even use a a mill for doing extremely precise drilling or something like a jig bore uh, for extremely precise drilling. Uh, but the Regulus has uh, an interesting function that those don't have, and that's that it allows you to very easily center a cylinder of some kind, a wire, a a rod, whatever that happens to be, something cylindrical, and be able to drill a precise hole through the center of that um, that part. So when I say about the center, I don't mean through the end of it, I mean through the side of it. Um, So in this case, I wanted to be able to put a hole through the side of the rod in order to pin it in place in the universal joint. And that can be a bit challenging. In this case, the rod was around four millimeters in diameter, and I was putting a 0.95 millimeter hole into it. And so you've got a drill bit, which is very, very thin and wants to deflect easily. 
and you're trying to drill onto the top surface of a, a curve. In this case, it was a tool steel. So it's a relatively hard steel to begin with. And the chances of your drill bit skipping off of the top of that were very, very high. Even if you do happen to have it perfectly lined up, it, it's going to be very high. And so this regless jig has not only a way of holding the rod so that it stays exactly where you want it to, uh, and also lining up easily so that you can get onto the center of that rod, but it also has little collets on it which guide the drill bit down and prevent it from deflecting off of the edge of the part that you're drilling. On top of being able to do um, to drill holes in rods, uh, cylinders of some sort, it also has the ability to drill holes through the center of a sphere, which again is extremely challenging to do, uh, especially if you're dealing with something that's steel. Trying to get the drill bit to not skip off the edge of it is challenging. And typically people will actually mill a little flat onto a, a cylinder or a, uh, or a sphere or something like that in order to give your drill bit sort of a landing zone to be able to drill into. But that still doesn't deal with the challenges of trying to center your hole properly on those things. Uh, they're, you know, they're extremely difficult to actually uh, center properly onto, um, you know, any kind of cylinder, any kind of curved surface like that. So this regless allows you to accurately do that and uh, and sort of saves you a lot of time and effort. Yeah, I was quite impressed by the number of different additions and, and fixtures that, that this jig has available to it. And uh, more impressed to learn that, that that's just a small smattering uh, of the different accessories available for it. Um, so, yeah, I, I did not know this tool existed. Yeah, it's it's one of those tools that... I, I use it once every couple of years. It's incredibly specialized. Uh, I, I don't have, mine is certainly not complete in terms of the number of accessories that are out there. There are ones that allow you to accurately index the part around so that you can put, let's say, two holes, uh, let's say 30 degrees apart um, so that they're, you know, you're able to create exact angles from your holes. Uh, there are all sorts of different things that are out there that allow you to do some some very precise work with this. And unfortunately, I don't. I just don't have all of the accessories. The the one that I purchased used was not um, was not complete by any means. And, and setting it up often takes you know more time than actually using it. That's the sort of the irony. Uh, you know, it, could, it, could, it took me a couple of minutes to set it up, and it's five seconds of drilling work. It, it but it's it allows you to do the drilling work very quickly and accurately. Because of you know because of the time and effort that it takes to set up, it's it really is the perfect thing to do this this one task. And this you know it's funny when you get into very specialized machining work, especially the watch world. There are very very specific tools that the average machinist even would look at and go, why the heck would you ever use something like that? Like why you know I would never invest in a tool like that because the number of times I would use it, it would never never pay for itself. But in the watch world, it's, you know, when you need to put that very precise hole in a very specific spot, there, you know, this is the tool to do it. And so it's nice to have around in those cases where, you know, you do actually need to use it. And it, it is the only tool for the job. In the last episode, we, we touched on the fact that uh, we're going to pursue creating a free sprung balance for Project Minotaur. Mm. And uh, having not known that this tool existed <laughs> back when we, we spoke last um, I had a, I had a very different vision in mind for for how we we might pursue that. 
Yeah. And um, I, I think this this tool might just just change uh, the course of uh, attack for for the, this initial free spring balance. Yeah, it, it was. It's funny when you you know for for me in the back of my head, I I didn't even think about it because I knew exactly how I wanted to approach doing that kind of work. There are there are a couple of different ways that that it's you know it's possible to do and it's relatively easy to do. And, um, and it wasn't until you sort of mentioned, it's like, oh, well, you know, I thought about doing it this way. It's like, no, 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 there, there's a very easy way of doing it. Once you've sort of set it up, like there's a couple of sort of fairly trivial ways to, to drill those holes. Once you figure out that what you need to do is hold it in a jig to, to actually drill it and support the drill and everything like that. And by the way, I happen to have that jig already here in the studio and ready to go. So yeah, it's obviously you don't know what you what you've never run into right and that's why it's kind of nice to work on these kinds of projects with somebody else who's who's played around with some of these tools or has them and and knows how to sort of get around those challenges yeah when we were initially batting ideas around i was planning to pursue more of a, a gyromax style route mm. uh, having no well similar to, to what botilan and, and, and dufour and, and others are using as well mm-hmm. and even roger w smith mm-hmm. uh, because that is uh, a a very a much simpler way to execute uh, a free spring balance with with the tools uh, at hand, mm-hmm. uh, but then you you have these these other techniques employed by the likes of Rolex and uh, now Omega, following a, a similar route where you actually have your inertial masses screwed in to the the side of the balance, or in the case of Rolex's more recent calibers, and, and by more recent, we're talking about like the last you know, 30 years or so now, mm. um, you actually have a, a threaded rod coming off the, the interior of the balance. So you have no risk of anything sort of hitting around the outside of the, the balance wheel and you actually get better aerodynamics, which actually does make a, a difference. <laughs> yeah. Um, even though it's, it's a very small scale. Um, so rather than machining a, a balance wheel in full for, for this first uh, attempt at a movement, I think we, we may be able to get away with just using the, the original balance wheel and, and just drilling into the side. Yeah, that certainly is a possibility. Uh, it, it shouldn't be that difficult to drill into the side of it with uh, with the right jigs and the right uh, the right drills. Of course, the challenge with this is tiny little threads, which are are always mm-hmm. yes, um, always challenging. And uh, so that that may be the the challenge we run into is just getting getting it thread well. But again, if you've got it supported properly, and you know this regulus can be used for supporting a tap as well. It doesn't just have to be used for supporting a drill bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, there's uh, there's a couple of ways that we can approach this, and uh, yeah, I think we can we can figure out a way of being able to drill into the circumference of the of the balance and actually get those weights coming out radially from it instead of along the sort of the top surface of it. It takes the precision angle out of the the equation. Mm-hmm. Like you've got precision covered when you're yeah. using the regulus. Yeah, exactly. It'll it'll put the hole exactly where you want it, and it's not going to waver. Yeah, and, and the nice thing about it is the the way that it's designed. It's modular. It's designed in order to have removable collets or removable supports in it. So if if we don't happen to have the correct size, and I know that I don't have very many, like I've uh, even though there's a bunch of collets in there, a lot of them there are the exact same size. Uh, but the nice thing is that it's very, very easy to make re- make replacements for it. And so, it, you know, I think it uses a 14 millimeter rod that goes into it. So, you know, buying a 14 millimeter drill rod that's precision ground, very easy to drop in. And then we can just make our own collets for that and make them so that they will exactly support the drill or the tap or whatever it is that we need 
and that will certainly make it simple to uh, to do. And the other nice thing is that it can be put onto just about any machine that has the sort of the vertical height to support it in terms of drilling. And so something like uh, my mill, my hardened mill, which is not a great tool for doing this small precision work, really. It's, it's quite a large, massive thing. But um, it also gives you the space to be able to put this kind of a jig on, on the table and then be able to very precisely move it into place and actually line up with the jig. And that way we can, you know, we can then work with it and uh, and sort of do the, the precision work that we need, even though it's not necessarily the ideal machine for doing that uh, normally. The size and the, and the mass of it actually helps in this case because we do have the space to put this jig in and we don't have to worry about the drill bit going and flying around or whatever in the uh, in the chuck like it's it will be absolutely precise in in the way that we're holding it and that'll that'll save us a lot of headaches from that as well mm-hmm. and if it turns out that we're not pleased with the way things turn out then uh, the nice thing about a balance wheel is just make another one and, and you yeah. replace it you don't have to scrap the the entire project that's just one component uh, of the overall project so we've uh, a lot of different avenues for for attack here yeah that's one of the things we you and i chatted about the other day that that uh i i really do appreciate about watchmaking versus some of the other work that i've done uh some of these pieces that i've made you get to a point where you've spent 25 30 hours working on a piece and then you get to the enamel work and you know you get to that enamel work which is challenging and fraught with danger and you screw it up and then you have to go back and restart the 25, 30 hours of work that you took to get there. The nice thing with these watch movements is that if you don't like the particular shape of a bridge after you've cut it, you can cut a new one. You don't have to scrap the work that you did on the other bridges or the scrap the work that you did on the balance or whatever it happens to be. Or in this case, if we don't like the work that we did on the balance, it doesn't affect the work that we did on the bridges. And, you know, there's something about that modularity that makes this a far more approachable project if you, you know, if you were in a position where you had to scrap the entire piece just because you made a mistake on the balance wheel, that would be incredibly frustrating and certainly make it challenging. So I certainly appreciate the, that modularity and, and how it will help us with uh, iterating on this because we, it means we can get to a point where we like the, the bridges and iterate on the balance a couple of times, depending on what works for us and what doesn't, or vice versa. We may hit it out of the park with the balance the first time and we may be happy with it. But we decide to iterate on the bridges a few times and make some, you know, make some different ones in metal and see how they actually work. Well, I, I can tell you from the outset with this initial proposition, just to get it free sprung, uh, mm-hmm. I am not going to be 100% satisfied with the final <laughs> outcome using the original balance. Yeah, I, I think at some point down the road, I'd really like to design a balance from the ground up and uh, go that route uh, as opposed to, to starting with, a, you know, run-of-the-mill, three-armed at a balance. Right. And the nice thing about that is that we can start with the traditional balance that's in it and we can get it ticking and, you know, keeping time with that. And we can then go ahead and make our own balance or try making a couple of different balances and see what work. And uh, and then just drop them in, right? That's mm-hmm. that's the beauty of this system. We don't have to scrap the entire project just because we've decided to make three, four, five different balance wheels and see which one works best. And it will be a trivial thing to upgrade down the road. Yeah. So the the key is to get it free sprung mm-hmm. because that informs the shape of of the balance cock and 
and how the balance cock is going to, to function. It means we're not having a pin regulator built into the balance cock. Mm-hmm. So all of those factors uh, all play into this together and need to, to happen as one. But once all those pieces are in place, that balance wheel can be, can be swapped out at any time. Yeah, something somebody was asking me about, and, and I think it's worth reiterating from what we said last time, starting from scratch is a nice goal and it's it's a wonderful thing to be able to do you know you if you want to go down that uh, sort of george daniels watchmaking route having a block of metal that you sit there and you carve and chew your way out of into a into a watch is is certainly an impressive thing to do and it's a it's a worthwhile goal but in many ways starting from an existing thing actually helps you out because it allows you to take smaller bites out of this project and to be able to do iterations faster because you're only working on a couple of parts. So I think there are a lot of advantages to what we're doing in terms of how we're starting with an existing movement and we're only changing some parts of it. And that does allow us to experiment and say, oh, you know, we're really not happy with that little bit, but we're not changing absolutely everything with this watch or we're not trying to start from scratch. You know, we don't have to worry about machining a main plate and getting all of those holes and the distances to you know between all the pivots exactly right that's already been taken care of right ed has already figured out the distances that are ideal from these wheels and we don't have to make the wheels and we don't have to you know get all the the gear cutting down right and everything and you know it'd be very easy to if you're making your own watch from scratch to sit down and you know, cuddle your gears and and make your main plate and then realize, ah, I made a mistake with this gear and I really should have chosen a different gear ratio. Well, now you've got to completely make that main plate again and you've got to make all of your gears again and everything like that. And it's nice not having to worry about that part. We can we can just worry about bridges. We can just worry about the, the balance. Yeah, it allows us to start with a, a proven foundation uh, as opposed to trying to, to dig that foundation ourselves mm-hmm. and and make all the mistakes along the way. And I mean, if you get the foundation wrong, um, it doesn't matter how beautiful yeah. your house is, uh, <laughs> you're, you're going to have problems. Yeah. Um, so it is nice to to start with this as a, a baseline and uh, to build up from there. And then mm-hmm. as things work out and prove themselves out, to go deeper down the, the rabbit hole of yeah. designing a movement from the ground up. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be nice to know that if we if we have problems with the timing, if we have problems with it, it just not ticking very well we know that the problem is with the balance. We we know that the rest of it is fine. And then once we figure that out and once we figure out the balance part of it and we're happy with where that goes, then, you know, version two, we can then start playing around with things like the the main plate and, and maybe changing the the shape of that gear train a little bit and playing around with that so that it's a little bit more ideal for some of the other things we want to do. And then we know that the balance works and we know that that part of it functions and if something goes wrong, we know that it's because we maybe didn't space the, the, the gears out properly. And so the, this sort of allows us to, to experiment and not have too many variables in play at any one time. So if there's a problem, we know where those, we know which variables we're working with and what we need to change and, and experiment with. That's the magic of iteration. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter, at Off Hours. 
John can be found on Twitter at UnderTheLoop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. <laughs>